It seemed like the perfect small town, a quaint place outside the bustling technology corridor developing in Dallas in the late 1970s. Men went to work, women volunteered at the church, but bubbling underneath the surface was a web of deceit that would eventually turn deadly. This week's episode is The Murder of Betty Gore, Part 1. Up, bump in the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. Well, this is a voted on topic from our Patreon subscribers. So thank you to everybody that voted. We gave you all. Some choices, and this one is, I think, on the top of everyone's mind because of the new Hulu dramatization. Yes, dramatization. We have both watched it. Yes. And we both have opinions and thoughts. (laughs) Hot takes. Well, and I see in our Patreon Facebook group, there was a whole discussion about whether or not dramatizations of a true crime incident is appropriate Mm -hmm. or, you know, whether it's done with empathy. And I've really been, you know, putting this around in my brain and i did come up with the when they see us on netflix is a dramatization of the exonerated five in new york Mm. and it's directed and produced by ava duvernay and it's it had a lot of buy-in from the people involved and so i think that's why and it's a way to tell a story in an empathetic interesting way that's going to get more eyeballs on it that i think otherwise it's you know it's hard it's it's hard to say of, well, not everybody's really into true crime and they're not going to maybe listen to a podcast or read a long form article or so it's a medium for being able to tell a story of injustice in a way that is empathetic. And I sobbed so hard on the plane that my comedy friend was like, did you maybe want to watch something else? (laughs) People are starting to look at you. And I was like, no, I have to know what happens. I mean, it's just heart wrenching. So I did not have the same reaction to Candy on Hulu. Oh, yeah. I think you make a good point. If the victims or the families of the victims have a a role in the making of it, I think that changes things quite drastically. And when they are very public about, we don't want this story told, and yet streaming platforms, whoever still picks it up and and does stuff on it, that's when it starts to feel icky and it's less an actual representation of the crime and the story of the victims and the actual people and more almost dark comedy-ish and just kind of uh, sensationalist to, you know, to get people, I mean, people like true crime. There's no arguing there. It's been that way for... Yeah, so, you know, I mean, people like grisly details a lot of the time they like you know drama so to me that's what what candy was and i think also we talked about what the sources were for the various you know if if it's firsthand interviews with the people involved that's going to create a different product and result than if you look at more objective you know trial transcripts or personal writings of, you know, if somebody is deceased, what their personal writings say, and painting a larger picture than just, well, the person who committed the crime is the one who survived. And that's that person's opinion that we're all going to get, or, you know, that person's version of events that we all get versus uh, I think our coverage, we are attempting to weave in opinions and public statements from her family, from her, uh, personal writings, things like that, that have been made public. So I think you really have to be careful when you're covering something that it's not just, okay, well, this is the story according to blank, this one single person. And when dramatizations, when the story is that way of, we don't really know what happened, Mm -hmm. the way they have to kind of shoot that to tell that story can get kind of weird and, you know, meta and stuff, which is kind of what happened with this one. So it's always, you know, people like an ending. They like things to be wrapped up. And Mm -hmm. especially in a TV series, that's what you want to see. People don't like it where it's like, oh, we don't know. Draw your own conclusions. So 
even with this one, it felt very much um, like it was biased. Yeah, cut and dried, or you know, and the title tells you what it's about. The title is Candy, yeah, which is the it's name not of the perpetrator. Betty Gore's life, and in yeah. fact, much of her life isn't even really discussed within mm-hmm. the show. And and what is is unflattering, and doesn't really you know go into the backstory of like why she's this way or why she feels this way, how she was severely depressed and struggling with postpartum depression. She's more painted as like this dowdy nag and Candy's this fun, sexy, you know, uh, easygoing girl. So it's, I get why people watch it and they're like, ah, that's kind of gross. And I mean, (laughs) we finished it and Tommy goes, well, I hated that. (laughs) Thanks, Tommy. <laughs> and I said, what about it did you hate? And he said, I just felt icky. It felt yeah. gross to watch, specifically the last episode. And I get that. Like, it took a turn around halfway through episode three for me. It went mm-hmm. from being what I didn't think was kind of like this cheesy, dark comedy. And then something flipped and it started getting more like that. And that's when I started feeling kind of gross about it, too. Well, and I think if you take, you have to take out the nuance when you cover, when you present a fictionalization. Like you said, people like endings. People don't like moral ambiguities. Mm-hmm. And people want a hero, even if it's an anti hero. And I, I don't think she's any kind of hero. I think uh, that Candy is a villain and we're going to suss that out. So mm-hmm. that's my opinion straight up top. Yeah. But I, uh, I, think a lot of a lot of stuff was I was left with a lot of questions and I thought I'm glad that our Patreon subscribers had us cover this because I was going to look into this anyway Mm -hmm. and I think the fact that you've watched the show hopefully if you haven't you know you may not need to watch the show but if you have watched it then you might say well what about this what about this I'm missing this detail how did that happen and that's the information's out there it's just hard to cram it into a five episode miniseries it should be noted there is another miniseries coming mm-hmm. out on HBO Max with Elizabeth Olsen and Jesse Plemons called Love and Death. The release date, I think, is sometime in September. It's like later on. They just wrapped filming. It got pushed a little bit, I think, because of COVID. So who knows how that one will uh, mm-hmm. suss out when it is released. But it this it, clearly this is a compelling story. But I think if it's uh, not told with the right lens, it might it can be. You know, it can be uh, muck up the waters mm-hmm. or muddy the waters. And I do think Jessica Biel and Melanie Linsky did a good job yeah. with their characters. Um, you know, and then there was a cameo by JT, mm-hmm. so who looked so different at first. Did I go, is that Justin Timberlake? And Tommy was like, no, it's that actor that looks like Justin Timberlake. I don't know what actor that is. And then about a Justin minute later, Tomberlock. who was it? It's Justin Timberlake. <laughs> <laughs> and about a minute later, we both said, no, that's definitely Justin Timberlake. Oh, yeah. And I was like, it makes sense because he's married to Jessica Biel, which Tommy sure. did not know. And he was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then that's no, Justin sure. Timberlake. I think, yeah, anytime you take a character like this or it, you want to step into their shoes and empathize with them and obviously do as much research. And it sounds like from interviews with the actors, all of them took it seriously mm-hmm. and tried to find where somebody was coming from when why they acted the way they acted. So. Yeah, I thought the children uh, did an especially good job. I was very, very impressed by the kid actors in this one. Well, if you haven't watched it and you have no desire to, but you want the story, then hopefully that's what we're going to do for you. This is a lot of cover, so we've broken it up into three parts. In this first one, we're going to get into all of their backgrounds and the very planned affair. Yes, thoroughly. Thoroughly planned. At some point, you're like, this isn't even exciting anymore. I mean, yeah, I'm not even horny about this. Yeah. <laughs> you're no. like, Mm-mm. it's like with anything, you're like, God damn, we've talked this to death. Nothing is I fun. I prepared a spreadsheet. <laughs> yes. Nothing's fun or like uh, a sexy or, or thrilling about this anymore. So, but I Didn't seem to stop them. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Candace Wheeler was born November 15, 1949. As the daughter of an Army radar technician, Candace and her family moved around to Army bases, from France to Germany and Maryland to Texas. A wild child, Candy found herself playing what her mother deemed to be boys' games and often dirtying up her nice dresses, according to the book Evidence of Love. 
And Evidence of Love is written by the authors of the Texas Monthly article. This came out in the 1980s, and then a made-for-TV movie was based on it. And it's largely based on Candy's testimony, interviews with Candy and the other survivors, and then Betty's family. And this scene particularly, they talk about her being a little kid running around in France. They The army base wasn't complete, and they were playing and she busted her face open and had to go to the ER and that at the ER she was crying and her mom told her, you need to be quiet, you're making a scene. Mm -hmm. Even though she was like hit in the face and was like bleeding. Yeah, she shushed her, which she shushed her. Plays into things later. Yeah, the article we uh, will be referenced throughout it much like the book was written by two men in the 80s. So the, the take on things is markedly different than if it had been written in 2022 i believe women yes yes by women yes when she was in her early 20s working as an admin assistant in el paso texas candy met pat montgomery an electrical engineer from dallas five years her senior candy and pat began dating after pat's mother and aunt who worked with candy set the pair up they corresponded long distance while pat was living in dallas and candy was still in el paso After months of letters, phone calls, and weekend trips, the two became engaged, then quickly married in 1970. Two years into their marriage, in September of 1972, Candy gave birth to their first child, a girl named Jenny. Two years after that, she gave birth to their son, Ian. The family settled in the Dallas suburbs, where Pat worked as an electrical engineer at Texas Instruments. And she said one of her dreams was to have eight children and a big farm. But then she kind of said, I never really envisioned a husband, but I don't really know where I was supposed to get the eight children if I didn't have a husband. So I kind of guess that's part of it. Sperm bank? I don't know. But she had a tubal ligation after the second child. So that was the adoption. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Yeah, They, um, uh, Texas Instruments is a big, still a big uh, employer around here. One thing I will say about the doc or, the, I won't call it a docu-series, but the series, the candy series, within two seconds of them showing where they lived, I turned to Tommy and I go, this ain't filmed in Texas. We don't have trees like this. No. What is going on? No, yeah, and to clarify, we live in East Dallas, which Dallas is a large city, and that's not really, this kind of a neighborhood that we live in. Wiley is a suburb that's north of Dallas and east of Dallas, so it's Collin County is the next county up from Dallas County, but it's all part of the DFW Metroplex. Mm -hmm. And it was back then largely farmland and was just being, uh, they they were just setting up like track homes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. developed with like track homes. And you see these kind of, you know, cute ranch style, three bedroom, two bath with a backyard and everything. And there was like a cluster of cities that was Fairview, Wiley, and now Saxe and... Plano, and so all of these Collin County cities, some larger than others, but this was kind of becoming a place for you get a job at the tech company, and it's not that bad of a commute Mm -hmm. if you're commuting to Richardson, which is another North Dallas suburb. You know, it's not that bad of a commute to if you live and you can get a pretty big piece of land over there. Mm -hmm. They do not have towering redwood trees, as the uh, show would have you believe. I believe it's filmed in Georgia. And if you're from Texas, it's very apparent that this was not filmed anywhere near Dallas. I also uh, took umbrage with some of the accents I heard on that show. I was like, well, I don't talk like that. I go, again, I said to Tommy, none of these people sound like they're from Texas. The only one that did was her friend Sherry. She did, yes. That actress did. Yeah, and maybe she's from Texas. I don't know. But... The rest of them sounded definitely more like from Georgia or Tennessee. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. it was uh, more of a southern instead of a southwest type of accent. Correct. And mm-hmm. Texas kind of has its own accent. Mm-hmm. So we're our own we're our own breed. <sighs> yeah, in a lot of ways. At the same time, Alan Gore was working at a different electronics firm in the Dallas suburb of Richardson. His wife Betty was a school teacher at an elementary school in nearby Wiley, described as. Serious and sensible. By classmates in the book Evidence of Love, Betty Pomeroy was born January 9, 1950, in Harper County, Kansas. Growing up, she was popular with the boys, but always had a shy and reserved manner about her. Her innocence and Hollywood smile made her one of the more well-liked girls in her small hometown, according to Texas Monthly. 
Yeah, she had a diary. She would come home and write about her dates and kind of say, I had a nice time with this gentleman and didn't have such a good time with this gentleman. And she kind of dreamed of going off to a bigger city to go to college. And that was going to be kind of her ticket out of a small, small town life. I was recently thinking about my diaries, just apropos of nothing, but I have them. Mm. And every time I see them, I burn with shame. And I can't bring myself to fully read them. But I want to because we were talking completely offline earlier about something totally different about not being able. Well, actually, it was related to this. We were saying, how can anybody remember an exact conversation verbatim that happened years ago? And we were saying we can barely remember stuff we said yesterday. And that's why I thought, hmm, I should go back and read diaries because I bet there's a ton of stuff from elementary school and middle school and high school that I have zero recollection of. Even stuff. So I found journals. I do have my journal from when I was evacuated from Hurricane Katrina, which it was, I started it two months before that. So I started it before I went off to college and then it's like so excited for classes to start and like they're telling us to leave. So in that case, (laughs) it was very fascinating, but also a lot of stuff about, you know, you know, boy stuff I had Mm -hmm. totally forgotten, Mm -hmm. but I even have, I started my writing practice in earnest pretty much writing every day in in like July of 2017. Mm-hmm. And there's stuff I wrote in there that were memories from my childhood that I had forgotten now, maybe because I dumped them out on the page. But it was wild that I was going back and reading from only, you know, five years ago. Like it wasn't that yeah. long ago going, I did that happen when I was a kid. And then you're reminded of it. And then yeah. this wash and flood of feelings that you haven't felt and forever, because you forgot that, mm-hmm. comes back. And that was when I did read some of my diary entries. That's what happened. I thought, I completely forgot that these, these things happened in high school. And it almost colors your perception of how mm-hmm. your experiences were. Because I don't remember that stuff looking back. So my feelings looking back were different when I was reading that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, your brain kind of protects you and maybe makes you forget mm-hmm. stuff you don't want to remember. And a lot of the Texas Monthly and the Evidence of Love are taken from journals from before this kind of interaction started happening. And then during, once they the couples all start keeping journals mm-hmm. and you start getting kind of verbatim stuff. But then, like you say, that's how you're feeling that day. We all change every moment. Sure. So it's it's wild to see, you know, you kind of go set in stone. This is how she was. Well, it's like that's how you were at that time that you wrote that. Mm-hmm. But we're all we're all moving all the time. Yeah. We're all changing and growing. I should write more in journals because I do forget things so easily that it would be interesting to go and, and look back. Same with baby books. I'm terrible about keeping mm-hmm. baby books. But at the same time, I don't want my journal read in a court of law one day if if push comes to shove. I don't t- I don't really particularly write about like I'm mad at so and so today. I'm mostly like we're in Detroit. I had coffee at this coffee yeah. shop. I you know whatever. So uh, more like where I was and what I was doing. But in that case too, if someone said, "Okay, where were you on June seventeenth, twenty twenty two? I would be able to say, "Okay, well, let me go check. Let me check the the notes." You can't you can't hide. They're like, "We know that you were at a Starbucks in Detroit, Michigan on this day." But you always mm-hmm. at a Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> Betty met Alan Gore at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas, in the fall of nineteen sixty eight. He was a senior teaching a freshman level math class, and she was one of his students. After a courtship stemming from private tutoring sessions, the pair married in January of 1970, a decision that surprised Betty's friends and family. Texas Monthly reported that they didn't understand what Betty saw in Alan and felt like he often came across as stern and snobbish. He also doesn't look like Pablo Shriver. He looks nothing. In fact, I believe you said, how dare they, when we were looking at the casting and we had (laughs) pictures of real-life Alan and... Candy Allen, side by side, not even remarkably, not even in the same ballpark. They did him a favor. They did him a favor. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. The Gores first lived in New Mexico, and later, Allen's work took them to Texas. Allen and Betty finally moved to their house at 410 Dogwood Street in Wiley, Texas, in April of 1977. They settled in with their daughter, Elisa, born in 1974, and their two Cocker Spaniels, Princess and Cheeto, After the birth of Elisa, Betty had struggled with postpartum depression and often expressed to Alan her distaste for being left alone. Still, Alan's job had him traveling, though he tried to request assignments to avoid it. 
I mean, at times he was working up to 55 hours a week and she was teaching school. But, of course, during the summertime, yeah. she's just completely home alone with, with, a, with a young child, with the baby. Yeah. And she had trouble. She said that the kids in Plano were maybe a little immature, but the kids in Wiley, when she started teaching them, were kind of aggressive they and borderline mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah she, and she didn't feel like she had much control over her class. Yeah, and that's got to be, I mean, just being a teacher in general is a struggle. But then if you have a class that's, you know, openly disrespectful mm-hmm. and then you come home and you don't have anyone around to help support you. Also, in the 70s, I don't, maybe we were coming into caring about women's issues and coming into caring about, you know, once you have a baby, some issues and not just going, she's, you know, she just needs to get over it. Yeah. She's just, like yeah, she's just mad because she gained a bunch of weight. Give her some uppers. Give her some diet mm-hmm. pills. It's like, good God, let help her. The, uh, the show really paints Alan as a dad that was, I don't want to say absent. I mean, his work made him absent. But when he was there, you know, he seemed to play with his kids and love them. But he didn't know how to change a diaper. He didn't know how to load a dishwasher. There's a scene where, you know, Betty's up with the baby trying to do everything and the baby's crying and he's just going about his morning making himself breakfast with the the bottles and formula sitting right there instead of offering to help. And, you know, I think that was also indicative of the times that women weren't getting a lot of help in terms of childcare and it was still very much these gender roles. Oh, for sure. And in, in, in one of the journal entries, she had said, well, I really love having a nice home for you, but it's also really exhausting. And mm-hmm. then I feel guilty about how exhausted I am and how I want help. So it's yeah. kind of a double edged sword that you're, you know, you see ladies home journal or whatever going, you can do it all. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm trying and it's rough. Yeah. And no one was talking about that kind of Mm-mm. stuff back then. Not either. being open. Yeah. Yeah. Both the Gores and the Montgomery's attended the First United Methodist Church of Lucas, The parents were involved in the church choir, with Alan and Candy each playing on the church's volleyball team. The Gore and Montgomery children attended vacation Bible school together. Soon, Jenny and Elisa became close friends and started having regular sleepovers. Yeah, and from what I read, Candy and uh, Pat were not really religious people. It was just kind of a social thing. We can go and be social, but later on got more and more into it because they had this very... A dynamic pastor who eventually Mm -hmm. moved on to another congregation, got a new pastor. Everybody hated him. You feel bad for a pastor that comes in and just is trying to lead the flock. And everyone's like, well, you're not Jackie. Yeah. It's like a boss coming in after everybody Mm -hmm. had a great boss. You're like, well, you don't do things the right way. I think it started off as a very social thing for them. And then progress into something else but they were super involved in the church oh yeah choir sports teams they you know their kids were very involved so they were up there all the time uh, specifically candy and betty you know helping out with preparing meals and stuff and it was one of those small town churches where you know there's a big kitchen and the um patrons uh this specifically the women back there would go and like fix lunch and after church after service you all have a big lunch in the rec room or the cafeteria or whatever it is so it was very intimate and homey and everyone Mm. felt like a family and that was kind of their whole social group was based around people they met in the church and that's what one of the church parishioners and friends of theirs was interviewed on snapped. And she said, Candy was everybody's friend. Mm -hmm. She was the one that was volunteering to throw things. You know, she was volunteering to lead vacation Bible school classes or sessions or whatever, and, you know, help with crafts or whatever. So I think you see, like you said, there's these gender roles and you kind of move into them. I would also like to point out how young they both were. Very. She's 29 at this. They're both 29 at this point, I believe. So yeah. young. They're within a couple months of each other, yeah. and they're 29, 30, and that is a, a lot of pressure. <laughs> they seem much older in the series. Mm-hmm. You know, they're... They do. It's, it's, yeah, I, when I read that that, because I don't believe in the series, they mentioned their age, and then mm-hmm. later when I read, I was shocked at how young they really were. Yeah, and also, you know, Pat is five years older than Candy, and Alan was several years older mm-hmm. than... He was a senior while she was a freshman than Betty. So you have kind of these older, maybe there's, um, you not only you have this sort of gender disparity in power, but you have an age disparity mm-hmm. in power. You also have when someone's the breadwinner. Mm-hmm. I read that at one point Pat was making $70,000 a year, which in the 1970s would be like $300,000 mm-hmm. a year today. So 
He was doing well for himself. Yeah. Yeah. And you you have these like power dynamics and where you say, oh, I'm not happy with my marriage. I'm just going to leave. Well, you're in a church together. Mm-hmm. You're tied together financially. You have kids together. You don't necessarily have a career outside the home. So you sort of see how it's difficult ba- given the time and also given just all the factors of their lives. For sure. John Bloom, co-author of Evidence of Love, told Oxygen, Candy was rebellious and always had an eye for the boys. She was always trying to live a more exciting life. One of those boys she had her eye on was Alan Gore, her teammate on the church's volleyball team. According to Evidence of Love, it was at one of the volleyball practices that Candy began to set her sights on Alan. Because of a lack of other options? Yeah, it's, um... Uh, in the show, you're like, okay, I get it. And then once you see the real pictures, you're like, I'm not getting it now. But it's a small town. I don't think there's a ton of pickings. Yeah. Yeah. For several weeks prior, Candy had talked to her girlfriends about her desire to have an affair. Candy thought her life with Pat was very boring and yearned for passion, telling her closest friends... I want fireworks, according to Texas Monthly. When Candy and Alan collided into one another during a play at that night's volleyball practice, sparks began to fly for Candy. Feeling an attraction to Alan, Candy made the bold move to express her feelings to him later that week, after choir practice. She then proposed that the two have an affair. By all accounts, Alan wasn't the typical man a woman would ruin her marriage over. He dressed plainly, had a receding hairline, and wasn't in the best of shape. But what Alan lacked in the ways of conventional good looks, he made up for with his personality. Candy appreciated his sense of humor and that he enjoyed the same things she did, going to church, spending time with his kids, singing, and sports. The two saw a lot of each other due to their shared interests, and Candy had convinced herself that the attraction she felt to Alan was mutual, according to Texas Monthly. She said that, he would, they would talk longer, you know, than other parishioners might with one another. Things would linger. Occasionally he'd give her like a sly little wink. So in her mind over these weeks, she's convincing herself that he's into me too. So then when she approaches him about having an affair, she thinks it's probably going to be pretty cut and dry. And I think too, you see what you want to see. He could have just mm-hmm. been being friendly. Yeah. And you, you go, all right, I'm going to make my move. Yeah. Alan was flattered by Candy's admiration and couldn't deny that he was interested in the proposition. Candy was the complete opposite of Betty. She was petite, blonde, had an easygoing disposition, and was generally loved by all. It didn't hurt that Alan was also sexually attracted to Candy. Conversely, Alan found his wife Betty needy and had grown weary of her constant fear of being alone. She didn't enjoy her job as a teacher and often brought those frustrations home with her. Alan and Betty's sex life had also become robotic. The two only engaged in the act when Betty was certain she was in her most fertile cycle as she was wanting to get pregnant with their second child. Still, Alan didn't want to hurt his wife and feared what an affair would do to their marriage. And I don't know if it's personality or sign of the times, but if you notice that your wife is has an irrational fear of you leaving on work Mm -hmm. trips or an irrational fear or says, I'm devastated when you leave the house. The answer is not, ugh, you're so clingy. I'm leaving. Get out of here. It would be like, let's explore maybe Mm -hmm. why you felt that way. And I can, like I said, it could be a sign of the times, personality, whatever. But I think that the answer is not to have an extramarital affair. She definitely was not receiving support and Mm -hmm. she wasn't from the area So she didn't have a ton of friends. And in small towns like that in Texas, or probably a lot of places, if you're not from there, then it can be hard to get into the inner circles. You're considered kind of an outsider, and it's hard to kind of find your footing. It's already hard to find your footing as an adult in a new friend group anyway. So she was not getting a lot of support. She didn't like her job. She was trying to plan having the second baby around the job so she could have her in the summer and wouldn't have to take off time work. So, you know, Alan kind of thought, well, this is kind of killing the the vibe, the romance, but at the same time, wasn't doing anything to try and help that at all. 
No, and seemed frustrated and sort of irritated from, mm-hmm. you know, interviews and, and some of the literature he read on it. And it's in the show, they really portray her as kind of this weirdo that can't have a yeah. conversation. But I think you are right. It is sort of an inner circle. As much as welcoming as a church family can be, it's also, well, she's kind of like an oddball and we don't mm-hmm. know her. And her parents lived in Kansas. They had gone from Kansas to New Mexico and then to Texas. So you're losing friends that you make, even if you start to make friends. So, and you can't, the connection is so much harder. You got to know people's address or know their phone numbers. People may have moved, you know, your high school and college friends. So it's extremely isolating. And for him to just be like, I don't know, it's kind of irritating that she doesn't want me to leave. She's like the only person you know mm-hmm, right? in a town that you drug her to. You get to go to work and have coworkers. Mm-hmm. And in the summertime, I mean, I guess, you know, she has coworkers in theory at the school, but it was a new job for her. She had been in Plano and then she moved to Wiley. So it's like you isolated like it. this. So, you know, it's yeah, not like you're she- looking forward every morning when you get up to go to work to, of what the day is going to bring. You're dreading it. And then it, you know, eats up your time at home too. He said she would spend a lot of time grading papers and stuff, which all teachers have to do at night. Mm-hmm. So, because he said, well, we don't really have sex anymore. I guess, you know, she comes home and grades papers, so we're not spending a lot of time together in the evening. So then we don't really want to spend time together in the bedroom. But if you want it, you'll you'll find a, and not by want it, I don't mean just sex, but like you want time. your relationship to improve and feel closer You'll find time to do that. And instead, he was just kind of making excuses of why, well, it's all kind of her fault. Yeah, she was, man, I really didn't want to go home because she was like really irritating me with being scared all the time. Like, maybe let's look into that. Yeah, it sounds like she has uh, severe anxiety. (laughs) Yes, you've isolated this person from her support group. And Mm -hmm. then you're annoyed whenever she is reacting in a completely natural way. Mm Mm-hmm. For weeks, Candy and Alan discussed the pros and cons of having an affair. Candy even made a list detailing the whys and why nots. Details and rules were hashed out over the phone and during secret lunch dates. Arguably the most important rule the two set was that either of them began to develop feelings for the other, they would immediately break things off. This was paramount if their strictly sexual affair was to succeed. The amount of meetings they took to discuss this again it's like just fuck or don't shit or get off the pot like it's i mean go was he the only person like at some point you're like okay i'm if i'm really trying to step out this is i've gone far enough like i'm just trying to get laid i'm not trying to have like hr meetings every day Yeah, she's like, we need to do some evaluations and discuss it. But I think it was her more trying to convince him. Yeah. And he's an analytical person. You know, he's an engineer. So he has to think of every possible contingency. But like she said, his love language was list. Yes. Like my love language is logic. Yeah. (laughs) Same though. According to Texas Monthly, Alan was much more concerned about becoming emotionally invested in the affair than Candy. When he told her this, Candy was very matter-of-fact. Alan, as far as I'm concerned, this is just for fun. I'm not serious about it. It's just a companionship thing, and we shouldn't be afraid of it. Whatever happens, we'll do it for a while, and then it'll be over. Eventually, after weeks of discussion, Alan decided to pull the trigger. They were ready after the lists were checked off and checked twice. And she even said at one point, you know, as much time as we're putting into discussing this, you got a lot to live up to in the bedroom when it gets to that point. And he said, yeah, I've, I've thought about that. Well, that's another contingency. And and if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's an evidence of love that Betty was the only woman Alan had ever slept with. Before I believe Candy. that is true. Yes. And I also, oh, that Betty had slept with other people besides Alan. But I think Alan, yes, was he was mm-hmm. not very experienced. Yes. Which Candy quickly discovered. Mm-hmm. Finally, on December 12, 1978, at the Continental Inn in Richardson, Texas, the two met for the first time. Alan came from his office nearby, and Candy drove over from her home in Wiley. Later in December, the two began meeting at the Como Motel in Richardson. Every other week, Candy and Alan met up at the seedy motel. During Alan's two-hour lunch break, the pair would eat whatever homemade dish Candy had prepared, have sex, and then talk about their lives. They found it easy to talk and confide in one another, something that didn't come easily with either of their spouses. Couple of things. 
You have to prepare food for this person? I'm out right away. Mm-mm, I'll take no. you a factor meal, but yeah, I'm, right? I'll be goddamned if I'm getting up early to make you chicken cacciatore and all beef teriyaki strips and shit. I mean, she wasn't just like taking Taco Bell. She was or making sandwiches. No, it was full on like meal meals with salads and homemade desserts and shit. I mean, who has the time for that? Also, oh, right after eating? Come on. Nah. Yeah. That doesn't seem comfortable. No. And the Continental Inn was $29 for a room, but then the Como was only $26, so they moved to be more economically yeah. efficient. Really? And the Como... I believe it's still there. Oh, it's still there. You can see it off 75 and right before you get to it's. I think it's past Beltline before you get to Campbell. It's a very iconic sign because it kind of looks like the 70s motel mm-hmm. thing you would see in like Vegas with kind of the diamond shaped, you know, um, sign with the letters on each one of the diamonds. C-O-M-O. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not anywhere I want to get intimate. Uh, new and it looks the same like it hasn't mm-hmm. been changed nope. she said she liked the seedy nature of it that it made mm-hmm. it more illicit on the show she said i hooked up with alan at a motel in dallas and i was like it was actually in richardson but don't try to say this was a dallas don't try to say it was, i mean it's a it's a suburb it's yeah. technically dallas county yes that, that is, is true it's in the yes. county but um but yeah that was interesting the logistics even further logistics of well it's the same distance and it's three dollars cheaper why don't we just go to the cheaper mm-hmm. one and save three dollars and I mean, the rules that they came up with, specifically Candy, she took care of everything. She found the hotel because he got a two-hour lunch break, which is an incredibly long lunch break. Generous. Yeah, she drove over to a motel by his work and then would take food so they could make the most of the two hours. But yeah, I'm not trying to bang after eating a three-course meal. That sounds terrible. No, no, yeah. No, despite the planning, I don't, I don't uh, agree with the outcome. Mm-mm. Candy and Alan became quite close. They looked forward to their illicit meetings, not only because of the sex, but also for the conversation. Soon, they began exchanging small gifts and cards. Candy would even leave Alan surprises under the windshield of his car on weeks that they didn't meet up. Their number one rule of not becoming emotionally invested seemed to be faltering. No gifts, no notes, no gifts, no flowers. That's love stuff. This is love stuff. And beyond even the the gifts, the emotional bond that they're forming and the conversations, that's where things get very tricky. That's because the tr- that's, yes. you can, there's a lot of different forms of cheating and they are both emotionally cheating and then sexually cheating on their partners. But the emotional stuff, I mean, I've never cheated on Tommy, and I will never cheat on Tommy. But I have heard that the emotional side of it is what keeps you going. Oh, that that will keep people cheating? Yeah, because like oh, if yeah. you're lacking that in your own relationship. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like you can go out and get banged by a lot of people. <laughs> but like to find someone your, that uh, you... I, I love your confidence. <laughs> like I... I could catch a dick today. I don't mean I me. One. I mean the general you. One could. There, but, especially nowadays. Could. But the some finding someone that you connect with and that the conversation's Oops. easy and that you can confide in and you feel like you're actual friends. And they weren't just talking like about the sex they just had. They were talking about their lives. I mean, they would lay there and talk about their spouses and like, man, things are really hard with Betty right. Like they were each other's therapists. They talk about mm-hmm. their kids. And so they're sharing very intimate details and then also being very intimate with one another sexually. And not being intimate with their partners at home. Yes. And also not having that type of intimate conversation with their partners at mm-hmm. home. So it's driving the wedge between the, each of them and their spouses further and further. And yeah, like you said, they're talking about hopes, dreams, and fears. That kind of stuff bonds you. Oh, yeah. Regardless of, you know, gifts and uh, chicky catchatory. <laughs> In February of 1979, Candy realized she was guilty of not sticking to the arrangement she had so meticulously planned. She had developed feelings for Alan. During one of their afternoon meetups, she confessed her feelings and told him they needed to stop sleeping together. I don't want to fall in love with you. We're getting serious, and I know this is a temporary thing. I don't want to deal with myself later if we go too far. In the book Evidence of Love, Alan convinced Candy he had a firm grasp on the situation and that there was no reason to end things just yet. It won't get too serious if we don't let it get too serious. 
I think the relationship is temporary too, but we've got to let it run its course. Realizing how much she would miss Alan if she ended the affair, Candy agreed to continue their relationship. And again, this is conversations that are remembered years after the fact that they happened. So, yeah, quoting. And it's it's one side of the, well, I guess two sides. We have Candy and, and Alan's side, but we're not getting any information from Betty as to when Alan comes home, maybe what that's like for her. Mm-hmm. And also, the time that the interviews were conducted in Jan- in 1984 and the- formed the basis of the book and everything, when you have a significant life event that you seemingly are partially responsible for, or in some cases totally responsible for, I think you pick and choose the facts and details that you release about your life. So I would say everything that she says in any kind of testimony or in interviews with reporters and things, it's all got to be taken with a grain of salt because, you know, first of all, building a case, you know, on one end, but second of all, reputation damage. So if Mm -hmm. you're saying this is how I handled it and I said this in this year, you start to get this unreliable narrator. In my opinion, I was listening to the audiobook just going like, well, that's what you said happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and to the reporter's credit, 100%, they did the right thing. They reported, Candy said X. That's sure. totally right. But for the reader, listener, you go, you go well, yeah. maybe that's what you say happened. And it might not even be that she is consciously trying mm-hmm. to lie or change the narrative. It also might be she is. But because she doesn't want to be the villain, you start to kind of believe the story you've created in your head mm-hmm. to make it even so you can sleep at night. So, you know, mm-hmm. at some point you Cassandra yourself and you believe your own lies and that then becomes the story you're telling. Absolutely. Despite cheating on his wife, Alan didn't think what he was doing was hurting anyone. He had maintained a friendly relationship with Pat and things at home with Betty hadn't changed at all. According to evidence of love, Alan didn't think anything bad could come of the situation. Some guilt had begun to creep in, though. Betty was pregnant with her and Alan's second child, and he worried she could go into labor while he was out gallivanting with Candy. After Candy returned from visiting her parents in Georgia, he told her they needed to put their affair on hold so Alan could focus on Betty for the next few months. That would be a real big way to get caught is if your wife goes into labor and you're in a motel. And they don't have cell phones. No, 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 no. You just have to get back to work. Yeah, she's calling your work like, where are you? The work's like, well, we got to wait for him to come back from lunch. Yeah. He takes the full two hours every other Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Candy agreed and even found herself relieved. She was disappointed that the sex with Alan hadn't improved, according to Texas Monthly. The publication also reported... She had grown tired of always having to make lunch and leave gifts for Alan at his car, things he had come to expect. Much like Alan didn't feel awkward around Pat, even though he was sleeping with his wife, Candy didn't feel awkward around Betty. The two remained friendly at church and saw each other frequently because of their daughter's friendship. Completely in the dark about what was going on, Betty was thrilled when Candy threw her a surprise baby shower in June. And then later, there was a second baby shower that someone else threw and said, well, we need a place to host it. And she let them use her house. So she's the audacity. It's, I I mean, in the in the show, it, they really do, well, I will say, they start out painting the picture that Candy really isn't jealous of Betty. And this is very much just like companionship sex thing. But then in the show, it turns and you can tell that she has jealousy and when she hosts the baby shower at her house and Betty and Alan show up together, you know, she is jealous of the things that Betty is saying about Alan. And, you know, it's also when she confides, at least in the show, to her friend Sherry that she's sleeping with with Alan. And so Sherry's the only one that's like, what are you fucking crazy? Having your your lover and his wife over and you're acting like your friends. But then one wonders, was she so removed from it? Were they both that they thought really, oh, we're not doing anything wrong. Do you tell yourself that because you don't want to seem to be the monster that you're really being? I think that the later portrayal of how cool they all were 
was a self-preservation tactic that Mm -hmm. I think that, I mean, clearly she did and and or that's some uh, cold, ice, ice cold behavior to be able to, I mean, even before they put the affair on hold, she is full out having sex with this lady's husband every other week and remorselessly hugging her, picking the kid up, mm-hmm. letting them have sleepovers. That is sick Seeing behavior. Seeing her church, having a friendship. I mean, it's... Uh, it makes my stomach hurt. Oh, it dude. It just makes my stomach hurt. I can barely look at people if I'm angry at them or something weird is going on. I could never in a million years act that way. I could not be like, everything's cool. Everything's like, fine. Like live a double life or no, I choke Mm-mm. under pressure and just immediately word vomit everything. And the same goes for Alan that he's out in the backyard and Pat's cooking hot dogs yeah. for everybody and he's hugging him and everything. That is just like, I don't know. The It's just weird behavior. It's gross behavior. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it's the depths of somebody that the selfishness that you're willing to go to, the lengths that you're willing to go through, go to, to do something like this. It's just, yeah, I, I could not, but I, I, again, when you go, well, we're both over it and we're both really cool about it. I don't know that I Are believe you? that. Yeah, I don't know. Betty and Alan's second daughter, Bethany, was born in early July 1979. Only a few weeks later, Alan resumed his secret affair with the woman who had just thrown his newborn daughter's celebration. However, things weren't the same as they used to be. The tryst wasn't as effortless as it had been in the beginning. Candy was certain Pat had no idea about the affair. But Alan was worried it had begun to negatively affect his relationship with Betty. He found himself uninterested in having sex with his wife and was worried he didn't love Betty anymore, according to Texas Monthly. Betty's life was becoming increasingly more difficult. In the week after she gave birth, she and Alan had been closer than ever, giving both of them hope that their rocky marriage may finally be improving. However, those feelings were short-lived. Things came to a head one night, after Betty tried to initiate sex with Alan, something she rarely, if ever, did. Unbeknownst to Betty, Alan had spent the afternoon with Candy and wasn't in the mood to have a second round with his wife. When he rejected her advances, Betty was devastated. Dude, you put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. You don't ever do this. I think Alan said he couldn't remember in the entire time of their marriage that she had ever initiated something. And then you do it, and you're rejected? Well, there goes, you ever wanting to do that again? And she had written in one of the notebooks that she grew up being told sex was dirty, Mm -hmm. sex was wrong. She had a lot of emotional hangups around it, which, again, back then, you're not necessarily going to therapy and talking these things out and being more, you know, open about sexuality. And so the one time that you branch out, the one time Mm -hmm. you get your husband has cheated on you that day. Yeah. To make matters even worse, Betty had found a lump in her breast. The doctor wasn't sure what it was, and Betty was frightened. Still unaware Candy was sleeping with her husband, Betty told her friend how worried she was. In response, Candy went over to Betty's house and comforted her. And Candy said when she opened the door that she just started sobbing, that Betty started sobbing and opened up to her, and Candy was like, okay, yeah, let's talk about it. Which, again, that is so cold that you know (sighs) that you are partially causing this woman's turmoil but that you go, well, I'm going to look like a really good friend if I go over yeah. there. She was, Betty was having a lot of stress and a lot of what I don't think she labeled as anxiety at the time, but a lot of physical ailments. And she went to the doctor and she, and Alan even said, well, I think it's just because she's stressed out. Well, bitch, you're the one stressing her out. Like, what do you're- you think she's stressed out about? She's trying to get it on with you and you rebuff her. I cheated mean, on her. Yeah, you're cheating Rejected on her. her. She doesn't know that yet, but she's got to know. She, you, you have a feeling. You have a sense. And even if she doesn't, she's getting very little help with now two children. Mm-hmm. She, he, He's gone still all the time. So even if she doesn't know, he's actually stepping out on her. Before that even, she wasn't in a happy place. And now she's got to be even less happy because whether he wants to think his affair has zero impact on what's going on at home. That is not how it works. I can't imagine anybody having an affair and it affects nothing going on in your home life because eventually your spouse is going to find out and then it 100% is going to affect things. Well, and what it just did, especially with this rejection, but also just from the like yeah, energy that it takes to 
pay attention to someone and listen to someone's problems. And if you listen to Candy talk for an hour about her problems at lunch today, you get home and your wife wants to talk about her problems. He's like, I already listened to someone talk about their problems for an hour today. I need to go to bed. So it is affecting it, even in small ways. But I think that's a very arrogant thing to say. Well, I've got this under control. And it doesn't doesn't affect her at all. And yeah, they were putting Betty on tranquilizers. They were putting her on pain pills. She had stomach problems. And I think a lot of the stuff was, she may have truly had physical problems, but I think a lot of it was physical manifestations of anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. Worried Alan was no longer in love with her. Betty agreed to attend a couple's counseling program affiliated with their church called Marriage Encounter. Alan had suggested it months earlier after seeing how it had improved some of their friends' marriages. At the time, Betty was reluctant. Now, she proposed the two give it a shot. The three-day marriage encounter retreat was a success. Betty and Alan left feeling closer than ever and hopeful about the future. One of the main focuses of the retreat was to be completely honest with your partner about your feelings and desires and to have no secrets. The two had been more open and honest with each other than they had been for the entirety of their marriage. However, one secret remained. Alan's affair with Candy. There was even a... At the end of the weekend, they had a marriage, like a wedding. They had a yeah. re- redo of the wedding. Of, of of everybody there. Yeah, the whole group got kind of like group married again, like a renewal yes. of their vows type things. And then they would have flame groups that would call mm-hmm. you. And they said when they got home that Sunday that they fielded phone calls all evening from people congratulating them on recommitting to their marriage. And then they would meet up with these flame groups. I haven't looked into it, but I will before the next episode. Is this like a cult thing? Like, what is going on Yeah, here? I mean, it sounds very cultish. I, again, I also haven't looked into it. They In the show, they do this thing where you would call, you have like a phone tree. I think they called mm-hmm. it a ring tree. And you would call the person on your ring tree and let it ring once and then hang mm-hmm. up just to let them know you're thinking about it. Much like the lamps that my brothers and mom Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I told Tommy... When their phone rang, and it was like 10 o'clock, I go, I'll be goddamned if somebody, when I have two kids sleeping, calls my house and lets the phone ring. And the phones in the 70s rang Dude. like a fucking fire engine. Yes. Like, you can hear it down the street. It's it's wild. Yeah. It it seemed to help them, though. And however, if, you, if you're going to go all in on a marriage encounter and go on a three-day retreat, and the one thing that's like why you're there is the thing that you don't come clean about, then what was the point, Alan? Yeah, you weren't doing that right. Mm-mm. With the new baby and the ongoing counseling, Alan began to feel guilty about the affair. He also noticed Candy's increased neediness, getting angry with Alan if he had to cancel one of the rendezvous. This time, he was the one to call it off in November of 1979. Candy was not happy, telling Alan, I'm not sure I can deal with not seeing you. According to the book Evidence of Love, Indeed, Candy loved Alan. They had both become dependent on one another to fill the emotional connection that was lacking in their marriages. After much deliberation, however, the two agreed to stop seeing each other and just remain friends. And after the marriage encounter, the whole thing in the marriage encounter is writing love letters to your spouse. So then Alan writes a love letter to Candy, kind of the kiss off. The kiss off, literally. The kiss off, love you. (laughs) And... It's in it. He says, well, you know, I'm shutting this down. I think it's for the best. We've had a lot of good times and sort of details everything. You know, a little wrap up, recap. Write it and regret it, Alan. And he signs his name to it. So, yeah. After the affair with Alan ended, Candy and her friend Sherry would go dancing at the Currency Club in the basement of the Marriott Hotel when their husbands were out of town. They would flirt and dance with strangers, but didn't pursue anything serious. Candy then met a man named Richard at the mayor's Halloween party happening next door. Richard asked Candy for her number, and she gave it to him right away. They met up for breakfast at the Marriott in North Dallas, and Richard asked her to go upstairs and have sex. She agreed. After that, they met regularly at a friend's apartment in North Dallas for sex. They spent time out of the bedroom as well, going Christmas shopping together at North Park. Candy later described Richard as emotional, asking more of her than Alan. Richard promised he could make Candy happy if they got married, and he would get truly upset if Candy canceled a date. After a few weeks of tryst, Candy broke it off. Richard was furious and called her repeatedly. She made it clear it was over. In an effort to reignite things with Pat, Candy signed them up for Marriage Encounter, but did not find it as successful as Betty and Alan had. 
Yeah, she said that uh, this guy sort of turned and started planning the future, getting jealous of her husband, and she thought it was weird because he was like a traveling salesman. So she figured he had done that before, but shut it down. And then the marriage encounter, she and Pat kind of made fun of it. It said they walked back to their rooms and were mocking everybody. Then they eventually kind of got into it, believed it. And then afterwards, you were supposed to have this homework, like lifelong homework. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to write these letters. And that they stopped after a couple of weeks and were like, well, we're talking more, so we don't really have to keep up with Mm -hmm. the homework. Again, even with her affair with Richard, you see it more than just sex. Going Christmas shopping at North Park. He took a picture of her with Santa. Great, great Christmas shopping in North Park. They do the mall up. Fantastic. It's a whole thing. So I get it. It's the best mall we have in Dallas. Yeah, but like you're doing stuff that you would do with your spouse. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not and it doesn't even give you the fulfillment you're looking for. And that's what she tells her friend. You know, I'm I, I breaking off because the sex is OK. Kind of like, you know, it, it runs out of its excitement after a while and it becomes more routine. But then also, like, I'm not even looking for this. Like, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I'm trying to fill this. Mm-hmm. She was just trying to fill this void in her heart, but with different guys. Mm-hmm. Looking for satisfaction. Candy also enrolled in special advanced English classes at Plano High School, where she had read poetry and tried sharing it with Pat. He had no interest in the written word. Candy then took up painting, which inspired her to start a business painting and wallpapering houses with her friend Sherry. So, yeah, she's just trying. She's Mm -hmm. bored. She Mm -hmm. admits she's bored. She's, you know, trying to find anything that will kind of spark an interest or be like, oh, maybe this is what I want to do with my life. Mm hmm. Meanwhile, the Gores got more into marriage encounter. They even invited Pat and Candy for a couple's dinner at their house in early 1980, along with their children. Candy agonized over whether she could go, even meeting Alan for lunch to discuss the pain she was feeling beforehand. In the end, she accepted Betty's invitation, and the four shared an uneventful meal together at the Gores' house. After the dinner, Alan sent an unsigned greeting card to Candy, reading, Good to have you as a friend. According to Candy, both considered the affair over. This is, again, some testimony that she gives on the stand of, oh, I had no, uh, after, you know, that dinner, there was no feelings. But the whole time before the dinner, she was talking to Sherry. Sherry's like, why would you go? Mm -hmm. Like, don't go to these people's house. Like, be cool. But Betty had become very emotionally open with this marriage encounter. It was totally transformative for her. She was crying more, sharing more. They said she was way more active at church, making friends. She's happier. Oh, so much happier. And so things were kind of on the upswing. And I imagine if your marriage isn't on the upswing and you see that the person you were having an affair with that she said she was in love with. She mm-hmm. And she said she had grown accustomed to and was fine with loving two people, both mm-hmm. Alan and Pat. So you see the guy that broke it off with you doing great in his marriage. You're not doing so great in yours. I wouldn't want to sit down and have dinner. No. She was like, I can't handle it. I can't handle it. And then she allegedly later told Sherry, well, I, you know, I don't know what I ever saw in him, but... I don't know. That's that's a quite a torch to carry. Yeah. I think that's also you protecting yourself from yourself. That card had been one of many Alan had given Candy over the duration of their relationship. Appreciating the sentiment, Candy had kept the often steamy letters. In the spring of 1980, Pat found one of these love letters from Alan to Candy. It was dated October 1979. The letter mentioned the Como, used the word affair, and talked of their sexual experiences. Alan also wrote that he was sad to see it end. Alan cherished how he and Candy had exchanged cards with characters from the comic strip Love Is on the front, which made Pat all the more sad, mad, then lonely, because he and Candy had exchanged those cards for the past 10 years. That's such a gut punch when it's like <sighs> your thing. Like, it's our thing. Love, You know those little Love Is? It's the two little naked figures, and it says, Love Is... Carrying in the groceries. Like, love is... I don't know about those, but... Oh, yeah. They're like the 70s. It was in the uh, newspapers, and then they had, like, merch, and, you know, they you had greeting cards and love things and pillows, like, embroidered with it. And it's, like, two little naked figures. Of course, they're just kind of, like, Barbie doll style. Mm -hmm. A little boy and a little girl. And it says in, like, a scripty font, love is dot, dot, dot. And then at the bottom, it would say, like... A hand to hold, and then the little oh. characters are holding hands. Or like, love is a walk in the park, and they're in- and so it would be like if you said, "Oh, well, we always give each other mm-hmm. Garfield things." Mm-hmm. That's the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> but you know where you go, like, "Oh, that's our inside yeah. joke," or "That's our inside thing." And know that she took that thing that yeah. she shared with you, 
and shared it with the guy that she was banging at a seedy motel is a gut punch. And that's the emotional side of the affair. Mm-hmm. For me, I mean, I dare Tommy to step out. But to, <laughs> to know that someone slept with someone else, that's horrible and heartbreaking yeah. and very painful. And maybe you don't get over that. But to know that somebody took the thing that was y'all's inside joke and your special thing and then made it that with someone else, that I don't get over. I'm not yeah, saying I, I would... get over the sex either. Tommy, he would never. But I just want <laughs> to be clear. Like, I did nothing. I literally did nothing. But no, I, <laughs> no but Tommy is... would never. He's fantastic. No. But, but yeah, it's just those, those are the punch. things that you can't forget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pat didn't break off his marriage with Candy after discovering the affair. Rather, he gave his wife a letter in roses. He said he felt guilty and responsible for her decision to cheat. Pat thought that if he had been more attentive and interested in her hobbies, Candy wouldn't have stepped out. Once the truth came out between Pat and Candy, she told Alan that Pat knew about the affair. Things seemed to go well for the next several months. Both families got along and their daughters became closer, with each spending the night at the other's house frequently. On June 13, 1980, Alan was headed to the airport to fly to St. Paul, Minnesota on a business trip. Having left a nervous wife home with an 11-month-old baby, Alan gave Betty a call once he got to the airport. She didn't answer. Alan chalked it up to being busy with the baby. He boarded his plane and decided to call her again once he landed. Again, he couldn't reach her and began to get worried, thinking she may have fallen. However, the truth of why Betty didn't answer the phone was much more horrifying than Alan could have ever imagined. So what do we think? So for this so far, I think the number one thing is considering the sources of the, you know, Mm -hmm. considering that it's Candy's version, that it's Alan's version, and as much as we can trying to get Betty's version in. And we will see that uh, I don't know that the affair was really that over. Yeah, and even if it was that the feelings there were actually over. Correct, yeah. Even if there was not any ongoing interaction there, it, it, ongoing intimate, like sexual interaction, mm-hmm. I think you seeing that person over and over in a setting of you can't say anything, you can't touch him, you can't be with them, that I think will, uh, that will drive a person. And seeing that the person they are married to gets to do all those things. And in fact, they're, they're thriving and, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're better than ever. And when he's out of town in St. Paul, Betty's at home with the baby, but Elisa is at, the Montgomery's house. So yes. she's staying with Candy, which adds a whole new level to what we will discuss in the next episode. And also one of the letters that Betty wrote to Alan as part of their marriage encounter, she said, I am very concerned. It was a little bit before, um, I think it was right after Elisa was born. And she said, I'm really worried that I won't get to see the girls grow up. I just have this weird feeling that mm. something's going to happen and I don't know. And it, it was, she had had that lump in her breast. She, you know, she yeah. had some stomach issues and whatnot. And, you know, just, I think ha- struggling with anxiety and things. And she just said, you know, I'm, I'm so happy with the way things are. And I just worry that it's not going to stay the same forever. And that's just so incredibly heartbreaking. Yeah, for sure. Well, we will get into um, what happens next in the second episode, and it's a lot. Yes. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Rolling the Airwaves and Getting Into It tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content including Am I the Asshole, Relationships, Judge Christie, which just blew everyone's mind with a very horrible well, set of cases. I have Dear not s- stopped thinking about people that. People have tweeted at us. It's uh, awful true crime headlines and more and patrons in the getting into it tier are able to vote on a bonus content segment each month that they would like to see live streamed and this week's is thursday may 26th at 8 p.m central and the getting into it tier also voted on this episode so Mm -hmm. thank you all for supporting the show you also have the fun perk of access to our discord server where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime share personal ghost stories or just post adorable pictures of your pets We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. 
For patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros to save you the cost of the conversion fee, and annual memberships are also available. When you select this, you get a free month of membership, so do it. <laughs> For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit SinisterHood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. Make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. And so many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. You can get some cool swag like T-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos by visiting Sinisterhood.com and clicking shop on the top banner. You can also visit Sinisterhood.com and click on live shows on the top banner to get your tickets for the tour we're currently on. Uh, it's going great. We go out again next week. We're super pumped. We've got some great topics, so we would love to see you there. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod. Like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Follow us on the YouTube and TikTok at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at? I am on Twitter and TikTok at Christy or GTFO. And I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather, what about you? I'm on the Twitter at MCK versus the world and on TikTok and Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout outs. Antoinette Marinello. S. Jade. Kate Barnes. Macy Price. Morgan. Kirsten Stokes. Sarah Harrell. Lauren Holm. J.J. Jones. Litlin. Sue Prosser. Morg Frog. Caroline. Madison Thomas. Lisa. Laura Dunsmore. Catherine Siemens. Catherine Tuckwell. Heather Gorecki. Becca Turpin. Stephanie Salzman-Bell. Jenna Becker. Rafat Salam. Katie Trent. Caitlin McLeod. Handbear. Isabella. Cindy Wilkerson. Sarah Borden. Morgan Figueroa. Alex. Jessica Hunter. Danielle. Harley Black. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. We hope we pronounced your names correctly. We could not do this without you, and we sincerely appreciate all your love and support. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Wahaha! <laughs> Sinister.